Okay, like, we're, like, just totally average fucking people who are nobodies, but, like, that does feel really good, everyone. (laughs) Hey, Sandy. Oh. (laughs) What the fuck? Hey, Nora. It's a different episode. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Sorry. (laughs) I fucked this up in Montreal, too. Shit. (laughs) Hey, Nora. It is question and answer time, or question and question time, or answer and answer time, or comment but not too long comment time. <laughs> uh, live in Vancouver, you're listening to us. It's the holidays because we're going to run this during the holidays. And the floor is open. The I mean, floor is open. come to the microphone. If you want to come up here, come up here. I mean, but no pressure because we can just repeat your question into our mics if you'd like to do that. And I'm sorry that you have to come to the microphone. That's intimidating. I get that. Um, but we don't have any mic lists. You're going to come up here? Yeah! Uh, I hate DVDB so much. And I would like to know your thoughts about what happens or what to do or when you're like organizing with people and you have each other's power and collective power and you win. And then institutional power, like, shifts the goalposts or, like, disqualifies a candidate, fucking buys a pipeline. And that shit makes me so mad. And that's my comment, and I want to know your thoughts, please. And I like your show a lot, and thank you so much. Hey, thanks. In the hypothetical situation where you do a lot of organizing and then you win and then the government changes the rules by buying a pipeline or disqualifying your candidate, hmm, what do we do? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, there's a couple of things. So I think, first of all, like, it is very, very important, and this is a fight that you will have with, 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 with friends and comrades. Like, this is, it is not easy to navigate this when you have people that want to believe that the NDP isn't total shit, right? They are. Like, they can't help it. And there's a lot of good people there, and it's total shit. Because it is structurally total shit. Uh, And it takes a lot of people to have their heart broken to figure that out. Um, But if you're organizing outside of the bounds of government, then you need to assume that they're going to act like a government. And you might have personal connections that will allow you to know that Dave Eby is afraid of heights, for example. I don't know. I just made that up. (laughs) Maybe you can use that in your campaign organizing. I don't know. Maybe heights is a bad one because then you get, like, violent. But spiders, let's say. Spiders. And you can all dress up like spiders. Then he'd be like, shit, they fucking know. And it's like, of course we know because we're all on the same side kind of, right? So there's some sort of like <laughs> you wanted me to go first, right? Listen, I just gave you a look, man. I okay. didn't say go first. 
But there's some things that you can use that can help like understand the strategy and you know these people and you can kind of work around that. So that's, so that's, a, that's a positive. Um, and then again, you have to be organizing in a collective way and fighting them as if they're any other government, but then using language that you know will, um, will, will work with them. If, if they're a fucking NDP buying a pipeline, uh, or the liberals federally, I mean, that worked really well with Catherine McKenna. Every time she opens her mouth, it's like, you bought a fucking pipeline. And she's like, Ooh, right? And you're like, yeah, right? So we have to be strategic and we have to change our tactics based on who is in power. And if they're our friends, then, you know, we know something about them. We can probably be even more uh, pointed. But in the case of a candidate being disqualified, I have to say that if you're going to do something like run for a party and you know you'll be disqualified, because let's be serious, that was not a surprise, you have to have something that comes next. And I don't know enough about the Epidurae campaign. I don't know enough about the inside conversation. So, I mean, that, I set that aside. But I know a lot of people that have run for things, have lost, and then didn't have anything that came next. And I'm thinking actually not about her campaign. I'm thinking of other campaigns that I'm aware of in Canada. And this is a, this is, I don't know what it is about the left, but it's like, oh, we just need to get elected and we'll win and then we'll like, you know, question mark and then profit, right? It's like step one, step two, question mark, profit, right? <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? Like you run, you ran to be, let's, I'm going to talk now the federal NDP. You run for the leadership of the federal NDP and you lose. Isn't there like a fucking network or bureaucracy around you that then gets activated to do something else? to then become an official opposition within the party, to actually build some sort of capacity among, let's say it's a left-wing candidate, among left-wing people in the party. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you cannot enter these spaces in shortcuts in saying, I'm going to become the leader and then that's it. Because if you do that and then they're like, no, you're not. And you're like, oh shit. And then nothing comes next. So you always have to build that power out, assuming that you're not going to win if you do win, then you've created a structure around you to actually be able to start filling really important posts. And then if you lose, then you become an unofficial opposition, a shadow opponent, the leadership of some sort of movement that's fighting for some sort of change. Do you, like That's how we do it. And I think that we've lost that knowledge on the left of how to actually build. And we are attracted to the shortcuts. And so then when they pull their shit, which we know they're going to do. Everyone that had hope is like, ah. And then rather than having something to catch them, some sort of group or movement or collective or something, you're just like, oh, shit. And then you're bitter and you're angry. And you should be bitter and angry about what happened. I thought, I mean, the way that the, the, the NDP dealt with the leadership was disgusting, frankly. But that's politics. And you know who's even worse is like everyone else with actual power, right? So you got to fucking get used to it. Um, but you always have to have some, you can't just lose and then have nothing. You have to lose and fall into a structure that you've created that can continue the work that you're doing in some other formation. Yeah, and it's why the best type of organizing <laughs> isn't just focusing on government. If you are organizing around an issue, if you want to be involved in government uh, organizing too, like that's, you know, go for it. But organizing around an issue makes sure that 
that heartbreak moment, which can be useful, actually. Mm. It can be a useful moment to experience that heartbreak so that you, <laughs> you kind of know what it feels like so that you know that that should never be the target. Like, you, you the target should should never, like, the, the end goal should never just be winning that thing. It can be a strategy towards how to get the thing that you actually want, what you're actually organizing around. But the, the just just getting that person in that place shouldn't be the end goal. Like, the end goal is to end climate change or the climate crisis, right? And so if the end goal is to end the climate crisis and Aperdurai didn't get into the position that we wanted her in to, in order to move that forward, well, what's the next thing on our list? That can't have been it. We didn't think the climate crisis was going to end when she got elected, right? Like, there's got to have been other things on the list. So the, I, you know, the, the thing that you should know is that the government is always going to buy the pipeline. <laughs> they're always going to buy the pipeline, and they're always going to make sure that they can win on their terms. So if you are playing on their game board, then you will lose. If you are playing on your own game board, you're making your own game board, or you're breaking the rules, and you're, you're not playing to win in that way, you're playing to win the bigger game, then that's where so many more possibilities come about, and the heartbreak is just is so, so fleeting, because mm. you're like working on the next thing, which, in which there are so many more possibilities in that next thing. Totally. I'm not seeing any hands, so feel, feel free to... Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> you don't want my seat? It is wrong. <laughs> that, that, that is the wrong position. And it's, it is actually Hold fast. On. We have to say the question. So for the recording, uh, <laughs> the question was, where the fuck is the anti-war movement? It was strong and it's now bad. And I just want people to understand that the person asking the question is like Master Splinter to the Ninja Turtles. Yes. Okay? Yeah, it's true. So literally so much of what we know about the left and organizing is because of him. Yes. And um, I haven't seen yeah. him in 10 years. <laughs> so um, it's really good to see you. Um, but... Um, I, I personally can't understate how important you have been. Oh, no, now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> so it's a great question um, because it's something that we have been thinking a lot about. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm so warm. Uh, so, yeah, the anti-war movement uh, right now really sucks. And it's weird. It's weird to, to witness it uh, because... I was at a, around at a time when it didn't suck. I feel like my, the beginnings of my political awakening was at around a time when it didn't suck. It, in fact, deeply influenced my political awakening was the possibilities of the anti-war movement and the coalition to stop the war, the biggest worldwide protest that had ever been seen in February 2003. February 15th. February 15th, 2003, worldwide, people taking to the streets to say no to war. Amazing. It was amazing. And now there's this weird thing that's happening. I mean, Nora, uh, who engages far more on Twitter than I do, you know, um, 
saying on Twitter, hey, like there is an anti-war position here. Like we do not have to be, have to take a position that is pro-war, pro-more money to be put into spending on the military, on weaponry, and sending it over to Ukraine. There's another fucking position here, which is fuck war. And then being completely eviscerated online by people saying, well, you support Putin, which is... Okay. What? That's... I mean, have we, have we gotten to, like, this weird moment in time where we, we can only think in these binaries, where it's like... Okay, if 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 you are against war, then you are pro fascism. Like I don't understand. It's it's very very bizarre. I think one of the biggest issues is we no longer have like good media. We no we don't have good media analysis, and we don't have a lot of alternative media analysis that's popular enough that is interjecting in the conversation. And so what journalists in, in this like fast media time landscape are looking for is something that will get clicked, that will get um, retweeted, and they're looking for people who can communicate really simple ideas. And so, you know, they're also combing Twitter to find people who can communicate an idea that sounds really simple, really easy, will be a really good bite online to invite into the newsrooms, to invite to write an opinion piece or whatever, and no longer is it people who have like a different perspective, a real perspective, a real analysis of the situation so that we can have even an anti-war discussion in a public arena. It's very weird. I don't know where the organizing is on the ground though either. Like I remember being asked to attend anti-war meetings. I remember anti-war conferences happening. I remember the urgency that everyone was feeling around that time. And it felt like it was touching everyone. Like it, this was going to touch everybody, this war. It was a potential that we were going to be moving into to some sort of World War III, these weapons of mass destruction that were being talked about over and over and over again. And uh, Afghanistan first, and now Iraq, and all of these these, these discussions that were happening, it felt so present, it felt like it touched everything, and now it's just, I don't, I don't know, it, it feels, it almost feels like people think that this is some sort of game, or like, mm. like some sort of weird, like, nationalism, like I, you know, like, the, the Canadian, uh, you know, institutions are flying the Ukrainian flag, like, as though, like, what is going on? It's, so, it's such a bizarre thing, and all of it is justifying Increased spending on the military, increased spending on weaponry, and increased um, strategies that will result in millions of people dying. It, and we're like the left position right now, as you say, is okay, we support that because otherwise we're fascist. It, it's outrageous. Yeah, okay, so I have a bit of a different response to this. Um, we are 80 years away from World War II. Memory of World War II has become very black and white on what happened. And um, when the war in Afghanistan was happening, we were 80 years away from World War I, where the memory of what the fuck happened there 
was it, it evaporated into the memory of World War II, right? So World War One is an imperial war where you know the nations sent their their young to die for no fucking reason at all, and World War Two becomes the the just war, the glorious war. We were there to stop fascism, right? Um, and so I think that there, that's playing a little bit of a role in this, that the, the memory of what is war um, and what is European war, because the other ones are invasions of like the West against racialized, specifically brown people, and the, the, the dynamics there are different. Now we've got a white person war. And you have people like Christopher Freeland talking about the decline of liberalism. And so... <laughs> we are post-history, right? There's no memory of fucking anything. There's no memory of anti-war organizing. No one knows what the Canadian Peace Alliance is. No one, no city has, has coalitions to stop the war, even though I'm sure there's people in this room who are involved with those groups, you know, years ago. And those groups are really important because, um, you know, Sandy, you got pulled into anti-war organizing that way. Um, I was an anti-war activist in high school-ish. I mean, I wasn't really an act. Well, yeah, I was. But I wasn't like that kind of high school activist. I know that maybe some of you were. You know, the annoying ones, right? I was like kind of cool a little bit. But um, I was very into it. Um, and, uh, and, and specifically, actually, because um, my childhood was spent doing concerts for remembrance, like nonstop, because I was in choir and, and I was in a town that was full of Dutch people, and so we went to fucking Holland twice. And I've sung at Vimy Ridge, I've sung it in Appledorn, and at the, which, which is wild, like all this Canadian military equipment and the Dutch people crying. And, and I was doing that at the age of 13, and so I was like very close to like the war machine. And the way remembrance happened in this country before 2002, before we, uh, you know, involved in the invasion of Afghanistan, was very much like war is hell. This is disgusting. Uh, I had a friend whose uh, parents were at Auschwitz, and so he would talk. I mean, he was like in his 60s or 70s when I was a fucking kid, and he would tell us about like what it was like to have parents in Auschwitz and uh, the impact that that had on him. And you know, it's very, very present. Very, very, very present. And when 2002 happened, the war machine completely changed. But there was still enough of an anti-war or a peace movement, and there's a two, two, two different kinds of movements. It's two, two sides of the same coin, but, you know, different. Uh, you know, rooted in anti-nuclear movements, rooted in, you know, fighting anti-imperialism. Uh, socialist movements obviously were anchoring all of this work. And... 2002 comes and all of a sudden the narrative of war in this country changes and we start to see the pro-war remembrance rather than the war is hell, we never want to go back there kind of remembrance that marked so much of, you know, I mean with of course the Cold War playing a role into how people were talking about war too, but whatever, I mean, you know, the cenotaphs all across Canada or whatever and legion halls and that kind of thing. Um, and so, like, the role of radical left-wing people, and specifically socialists and Marxists, to continue to make sure that there was an anti-war movement in 2002 was important. But 2002 is also an important year um, in the shadow of September 11th and in the, in the transformation of the neoliberal state to start to just destroy popular organizing. And I mean, we'll remember all of the ways that these things, death by a thousand events, that just killed the anti-war movement. So that is all part of it. 
then you have a government, a, le- a liberal government, who's like, liberalism is about to die. And we need to save the shining city on the hill of, of you know, liberalism or whatever the fucking Christopher Freeland wants to talk about, really right? Good. And thank you. And like, fuck her. And um, and 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 so it's been it's been created to be this the bulwark against Russia is Ukraine. There's no bulwark against China, so we just go with full on xenophobia. But we can't really do Russophobia because they're white. And so we have to create this other kind of narrative that Ukraine is, is the bulwark against the fall of Western democratic capitalism. Or we need to save Western democratic capitalism in Ukraine by engaging in this war. So it's very hard to talk about this stuff. You know, I was on CBC and I basically said some of this stuff and it was like one of the one like episodes where I got instant like, what the fuck, fuck you. And I was like, whoa, that was fast. Um, because as Sandy said, there's no space to have a conversation about this. But, you know, I think Canadians are cowards, frankly. Um, uh, by and large, we are a coward, cowardly people. And we need uh, a, a radical socialist-led movement to give people the confidence to say, oh, I can be part of that. And we saw this with Afghanistan because you'd be like, what the fuck? Why the fuck are we engaging Afghanistan? It's like, you hate girls in Afghanistan. And you're like, oh, shit, do I? Oh, no, I want them to go to school. It's like, yeah, well, then you support the troops. And you're like, oh, I guess so. But, but the movement allowed you to be like, no, actually, fuck that. And here's why. One, two, three, four, five pieces of fuck you, right? So we don't have that. We have literally not. There's no internationalism. There's no, there's like, I mean, the left is all fucked up on this. And I'm sure, you know, like, like there's Trotskyists who are like fucking totally pro-war. And you're like, what the fuck? Um, and it's, it just creates this really soupy mix of, well, uh, you know, write a fucking blank check to, to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And who wrote that blank check? Who co-signed the blank check? Jagmeet Singh, mm-hmm. right? Which then brings us back to the NDP. And the NDP was also an important battleground for the anti-war movement. The leadership race, which you may have been at, I don't remember, but the leadership race in 2006, uh, where Jack Layton was elected, was, an anti- was, was decided on anti-war activism where there was a candidate who was like the anti-war candidate which is kind of funny it was joe comartin if anyone's curious and layton was not the anti-war activist but the but the but the way that the 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 activism worked at the ndp convention layton felt the confidence to be able to actually say no we're not supporting this and he got called taliban jack and we'll remember all of that right he wouldn't have fucking done that if it hadn't been for the anti-war movement targeting the leadership of the ndp so we are sadly fucking ages away from that so much has changed and and it's really hard to say this stuff because as sandy said like all i say this stuff and i've got like fucking i don't know 20 accounts that are just like always saying like fuck you know you're pro-russia and i'm like what the, like say your worst like fuck you i don't care right um but it sounds bad because people are dying in ukraine and you don't want to negate the fact that people are dying and it sucks and russia shouldn't be fucking killing people obviously but we don't have the intellectual um, architecture to allow us to even start to build these kinds of campaigns. And, and it's a disaster mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah, that's, you can clap, but fuck. I mean, why don't we just, you can just make me cry again and we'll just cry, right? How about that? Next question. That never happens, by the way, everybody. So you just witnessed something very fucking something. It doesn't. And also, I feel like I feel compelled to say, 
<laughs> that um, one of the most brilliant things about that is like like I just I have been witness to like the yelling that happened between these two people, <laughs> you know, and all of the yelling between all of us. And I feel like I, I do. I think that I mourn those days because I don't know that that sort of organizing is acceptable anymore, where you can yell across the room at each other um, for days because you disagree with the tactic, and then ten years later cry about how lovely it is to see to see you. Like, no, seriously, I I just I think that that's um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So how do you build intergenerational power structures without starting from scratch and having to rebuild every few years? That are sustainable. That are sustainable. Excellent question. Do you want me to start or you want to go? You start. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think with all of my answers, you'll realize that it's quite broad and there's structural issues. We are segregated uh, um, by age frankly, like we, we do not have casual environments where we are interacting with people of many ages. Um, those might be religious organizations. They might be social organizations or, or interests clubs that could bring people together. But by and large, we don't have it in Quebec on the left. There's a real tradition of making sure that those intergenerational like connections, uh, are strong. You know, one of the most powerful meetings I was ever at was in someone's living room, and the ages spanned from, I don't know, 22 to 75, and the folks who were in their 70s were talking about um, activism in the 60s and the feminist movement and how amazing it was and how dangerous it felt and how they really felt things were changing. I mean, in Quebec, like, it was, it was truly revolutionary what was going on in the 60s as a reaction to literally everything that had come before. And... Um, it was so powerful to hear. I mean, a friend of mine, because in Quebec, there is more gener intergenerational stuff. Like, like our, you can sit in a, in a lefty meeting and you can see kind of like the waves of student activism. So there's like this big gap in certain years where there's no one who's like 56 because that was a, not a great year in like in Sejep, right? <laughs> Fucking 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, but but uh, there are still older generations and there's still younger generations and that and that knowledge transfer is really important and I think it's so important in Quebec because it's part of culture and culture is always under attack in Quebec like you know the French language is you know you're you're an island in in, in Anglo hegemonic North America and you there's a lot of effort built into making sure that those kinds of relationships exist so I think we have to recognize that we don't have those relationships and I think we have to seek them out and I think that we have to create spaces where people can become friends or friendly of with other people who are not the same age as them because you know there's an incredible richness in understanding the world before the internet and there's some people in this room that will remember it there's some people in this room who absolutely remember it and there's some people in this room who might kind of remember it and then there's some people in this room who are like what the fuck are you talking about right and the richness is that, I mean, this is my new shit that I'm on, is like, I think that the internet is actually like fucking us all in the most severe way and we need to all get off of it. But um, to, to know how and to know what we've lost requires the people who did the organizing on like landlines, who did the organizing with flyers, with tables, with talking to people, with no, like the shortcuts were harder because you couldn't just put out a tweet. There was none of this bullshit, fake celebrityism. Um, there are other problems for sure, 
But that kind of knowledge is so critical because if we are going to ever confront power, it can't happen online because we're all surveyed. We're all watched. All of our messages can be read. All like we cannot, we cannot do radical organizing online. Period. We cannot. We can do other things. We can help ourselves. We can meet one another. It's it's not all it's not all useless, but to do radical organizing that challenges the state is not going to happen online. As we said this morning on the episode, like fucking the like cybersecurity experts are already saying that the internet is a place where the fucking you know dangerous people are organizing and it's like that's going to include us if we're organizing in a way that challenges the state so um yes having events that look at past um past struggles and asking people to talk about their struggles really really important uh finding uh, uh, tasks for people who might be retired right there's a lot of retirees that have time like that would be really important. If you are, I mean, the anti-war movement's a really good example of that because um, if you're looking at the feminist movement, feminist movements in Canada, in, 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 in English Canada, uh, especially here in Vancouver, uh, were rooted in the anti-nuclear struggle in the 1960s. That's where the feminist movement was born, actually. Uh, the radical feminist movement was the anti-nuclear struggle. So there's still, the folks have that knowledge still. They still have that history. They, like, there's still some people around. And before people die, you have to get those stories into rooms with other people. Um, depending on what kind of group that you're with, you also can create up, like, like buddy systems and mentorships and getting people together and, and having coffee and having uh, these conversations or games or whatever. Um, but you have to do it intentionally because if we don't, we just stay with our, the groups that we have and, and you don't know how to meet someone who's not your own age. Yeah, I think what I would add to that is uh, part of the reason that this happens, why it's hard, is because we live in a society that, that views uh, people of a certain age as surplus and doesn't view them as valuable. And there is, there's no like location that is uh, a place for them to thrive in like, an institutional way. And, and and that you're seeing that replicated in the the sort of movements that you're you are working on, which means that you have to be intentional about undoing that. I would say that it does exist in some movements. So in indigenous movements, there are specific roles for elders often, and you can learn from that. You can learn from the ways that uh, that that people uh, engage that sort of relationship. In the movement that I'm, uh, you know, working in, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada specifically, we have a role for elders because we didn't like one of the things that we we thought of right away. It was like in the first two weeks we were like, we don't want to do the same thing that has already been done. Like it doesn't make sense for us to repeat the same stuff. We don't want people to be ready. Um, and just be like, okay, let's just check what happened before in order to absorb all of this and then, you know, be done with this in a month. So we set up an elder council. It's it's not something that you see on the news. It's not something that you read about on Twitter or whatever because it's not like the, the sexy part of the activism that, that the only thing that people want to see. Um, and then they're like, you know, when, when they don't see the sexy stuff, they're like, where's BLM? BLM's over. But it's not. It's like it's a, a central part of our activism is that we have these regular meetings with the elders who organized like the 1992 um, uprising on Young Street that happened in Toronto um, and, uh, and did a lot of fight back um, uh, to organize against uh, police brutality uh, in Canada. We meet with them four to six times every year and every time that we're doing something that's like 
kind of like, okay, we're taking this step that it feels like no one's ever taken. Is that true? Um, what do you think about it? Like, how, do, how would you respond to this? And we have these long meetings where we discuss how, that, how they think that that's going to work out, how they think that we could be better served. They've, they've changed our minds on taking different um, tactics. And they also are fun <laughs> and really great to, uh, to talk to afterwards when, when the shit really burns and it sucks and it hurts. Like, you know, the post-2016 Pride Parade, when we stopped that, I mean, people talk about it now like it was like this really cool thing, but it really sucked at first. It really fucking sucked. Everybody hated us. People were, um, like, being really physical with us. Uh, pushing us, spitting on us on the street, whatever. And it was really, really great, really, really great to have a group of elders who were constantly checking in, getting us meals, making sure that we were taken care of. Let's get dinner um, this, this day. Like, they were organizing for us the parts that we couldn't organize ourselves. And I cannot tell you how valuable that is. Because it doesn't matter, like, all the shit that people throw at you and then all of the ways that people were discussing, you know, like, was this the right thing to do? Was it the wrong thing to do? Should we be talking about black lives when, when you were talking about queer and trans lives? Like, all of that noise that makes you kind of doubt yourself and almost be like, like, what am I doing? Like, what is this about? Like, what was this for again? <laughs> I can't take the subway anymore. What the fuck? <laughs> to have someone there be like, are you okay um, here? Like, let's just eat and have a conversation. That is organizing too, and that is a such a such a, an amazing role um, to have in your movements. If you, if you're not having that role, like, I mean, I can't tell. I, I'm like even right now at this point where um, you know there's a lot of critique of the BLM movement, especially with stuff that has happened in the United States. It's really helpful to have someone like just reorient you to be like, does that matter? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. In 10 years, no one will remember this, that shit. That is a tactic that is meant for you to stop. Don't stop. Your shit was never dependent on what people thought of you. They always hated you from day one. They loved you for a moment, and then they're going to hate you again. Focus. It's really great to have a role carved out for that so that you keep going no matter what's going on. So I would really encourage you to try to learn from those movements that do have a structure for that and do have it set up. Uh, the next question can get to the microphone. I just want to add one thing that I've also learned from your experiences, which has been uh, older members of the movement can be very helpful in navigating interpersonal stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? And, and, and yes. especially someone who's not online, who doesn't need to see, like, when you're like, we don't know, like, there's a conflict between these two people. And then you get someone who's, like, 65 who's like, well, I don't care about either of these people. I'm going to figure this out, and I'm going to help navigate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but, you know, there's, a, there's this, like, culture around, like, transformative justice ways of, uh, of conflict resolution in activist spaces. Feel free to disagree with me here, but like they never work. They almost never work. It's like this like weird sort of thing that we all pretend that it works, and we're like, oh, we're going to get together and we're going to have a discussion about the things that we disagree with each other on, and it's going to be lovely, and we're not going to hate each other, and there will be no punishment uh, that arises out of this, and and we're going to because we're all committed to the goal, except for as soon as one person 
uh, one side of that is not a part of, like, doesn't adhere to that. It just falls apart, and that happens all the time. <laughs> like, that's why there was the laughter, because you recognize it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's happened in, in our movement, too, but there have been, I think, I, no one has it right with this yet, but I think we did pretty all right, because the amount of shit that you've seen, if you've followed, that's like scandal or whatever of people hating each other, very minor uh, compared to like the type of, of deep frustrations and discussions and anger that have actually happened. Because the elders took the role, like we didn't like just pick someone who's a mediator who's like everybody's age and, and it's also related to everybody in some way and then has an interest in how this comes out and whatever, which is how it usually ends up. Our mediators were always part of the elders, and, and they cared deeply about all of us. They cared deeply about all of us, and we care deeply about making sure that we maintain a beautiful relationship with these elders. And so it changes the dynamic of any sort of uh, transformative justice sort of project. Again, I, it, I still think it doesn't work in the way that we want it to work, I have some theories about that. Maybe we'll have a podcast about it, about what needs to happen. But absolutely, that's one of the roles that I think in an intergenerational movement is critical for elders to play. Mm. Next up. So hi there, folks. Um, um, my name's Ian. I'm a teacher in Vancouver. I don't know if you can hear me. Okay, maybe. So project, oh man, I do that every day. Um, so <laughs> hi, I'm Ian. I'm a teacher in Vancouver, and, uh, and uh, I'm really uh, grateful that you all came out. Uh, I'm grateful. And I just wondered, I, I know that I'm supposed to ask you questions. I just wonder if I could ask everyone here just a couple questions about, yeah. about, about recruiting. You know how you mentioned that uh, you saw people getting picked out of your movements that were really good. And uh, you know, I, I'm wondering if you know, maybe people, you all feel like you were the left behinds that like you didn't get picked. Um, you know, um, I, I saw people get picked out of movements I was in, and they, they got to go to the like the cool job that everyone thought like, oh, he's gonna work, he's gonna work at the NDP, he's gonna get, he's gonna have like a job, he's gonna have like like an office, he's gonna have like a be able to like buy something with 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 one day, right? We all thought, oh, that's so cool. How come we got that, right? And then you find out later that you know maybe that wasn't the best move you would have wanted to have. So uh, my questions, couple, couple questions for everybody here, just really quick. Uh, uh, how many people um, would have liked to have been recruited, would have liked to get picked? Anybody want to get picked? You didn't think, okay. How many people wanted to pick someone, if they, if they could have seen someone in their, in their group and they wanted to like, pick someone, if they knew that if they picked them and got behind them and like, like spotted them out as a horse for a course, like somebody who could do good, maybe they would get somewhere. Anybody wanted to do that? Okay, just so you know, all of you are probably doing that if you are sponsoring their show, the, these folks' show. If you're, if you're a Sandy Nora contributor on Patreon, I didn't mean to shill for you, but I'm just saying, like, like honestly, um, like, sometimes that's what you need. When you want to have someone do work, you have to pay them sometimes, and maybe it's like pie or dinner or bandwidth, I don't know, but, but sometimes it's money. Um, like, uh, but the one big person that really could have linked this up, I want to just try, I'll try to keep it shorter. Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois. Anybody heard of that guy's name before? Rings a bell? 
Remember the Maple Spring, the where people bang their pots, not the pots in 2020 when we were fake, fake, fake hooraying the nurses, but like Gabriel Nadeau Dubois was one of the leaders of the student movement that just shook the hell out of Canadian politics of the left. And when he came here to Vancouver to speak, I don't know if, I guess no one remembers him, but one thing he told us was two things. One, kill a lot of trees to write things on leaflets and newspapers and hand them out every other day to make sure people see things. You know, don't just do the, the online thing. And this was when, 2012, when the online thing was still kind of shaky, but the, the uh, we call the Maple Spring right, because of the Arab Spring. And everyone thought, oh, it's Telegram, Telegram, get it. All the, 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 the Egyptian revolutionary socialists had said, yeah, no, that's not how we organized. Yeah, stuff got organized for, for rallies and stuff, but we had been leafleting for years and months before that to lay the groundwork. You talk about advocacy, right? Talk about, you know, and, and, and that's a great thing, to talk about TikTok as having, and, and social media having a power. I really appreciate that. And the thing is, the thing about advocacy is, and I found this out the hard way so many times, Advocacy only works when there are people organized to see what you're saying and do something about it. Other, otherwise, it just goes flat. You, can't, you can try doing it but with one person, it'll tank. So you can fight over her about how many people are there. It won't matter. Mm -hmm. And that's why you are, you're posting about all kinds of crazy stuff about, about CBC and, and, uh, and, and snow plows and kids in bathing suits and whatever. Right? That's what happens. Right? <laughs> but the thing is, thing is, right, like, like that stuff, they know. They know that's not the real influence. The real influence is when somebody can actually go and take a poke at the ruling class and know what they're going to get out of it. Not find out that, oh, they're poof, they're gone. But they knew that when they did that, they would grow as a group, learn something, and take something away from it, whether or not they did well. So um, I, I'm... Okay, so, so like uh, all I want to say, last thing I say, my, my one disagreement that's going to tick you off, you need to be out socialists more because the one thing we need as activists is hope. And you all, you're about saying, we will win and we've got to kick at the darkness till we bleed daylight. But the thing is like, okay, but then what? Okay, and, and what I'm saying is if you want to talk about the memory of the class, you want to talk about this thing where we don't remember any of the past, well, we've got to have... We've got to have an organization that understands that we're here to beat the shit out of capitalism and win that, but we need to remember how people did it before. And so I'm s thank you for letting me run, uh, and I'll, I'll let you respond. Thanks. Yeah, um, okay, so let's start with Nadeau Dubois. Um, everyone know what he's doing now? No? Oh yeah, well, apologizing sometimes for himself. So um, the student strikes in 2012, um, if you don't know about them and you're a left-wing person, fucking learn about it. You have to know about it. I can give you the, the short of it, and I won't do that here because I've talked a lot about the Maple Spring. Um, but Nadeau Dubois was 22 years old. He was one of the three leadership of this of this massed group of student unions in the province of Quebec. And they did very old school organizing to organize student strikes to then, um, you know, get 80,000 students on unlimited general strike throughout 2012 and these massive protests in the streets that were like swelled to 400,000 people. But it wasn't just that. It was also that Nadeau Dubois was this incredible communicator 
had this incredible charisma, which I think on the left sometimes in English Canada we're like charisma is like bourgeois or something, like it's not necessary. And so we're going to have like the least charismatic fucker as like our leadership, right? Right, where's our Bernie? And it's like, no, it's actually important. And it's not, it's not a value statement. Not everybody's charismatic. Like, that's fine, right? Not everyone's tall, right? But, <laughs> um, but it is super important. And, and the student strike brought down a majority government in Quebec in 2012. They brought down the government of Jean Charest and really fundamentally transformed a part of Quebec society and let in motion what happened 10 years later, which is that he is now the co-leader of a political party that is the de facto uh, opposition to Francois Legault. And what's really cool about that, talking about intergenerational stuff, is you've got Francois Legault, who's like a super classic businessman. As I said, he founded Air Transat. He's 65 years old, up against Nadeau Dubois, who's like 29 or 30. And every time Nadeau Dubois is basically like, no, Legault turns red and his face gets all pursed and angry and it's a really great little duel um, I have tons of criticisms of him but I mean generally it's it's he's you know they're doing good work so the social movement backing what created that kind of leadership was really important but if there had been no social movement there would be no Gabriel no de Dubois um, on the on the on the issue of, of of being an out socialist or talking about socialism more it's very funny I was just in Ottawa I was speaking for um a group that brought together immigration and refu uh, refugee settlement agencies. And it was wonderful. When I was invited, I was like, no, I don't do that kind of work. Why would you invite me? And they're like, no, 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 we want to hear what you have to say. So I was like, okay, fine. And um, one of the questions that I got, and the questions were on, on an app. So I was speaking to 500 people, and then they send me these questions on this app, and it was like the questions were, as you can imagine, hostile, because no one would ask this question at a microphone, right? Including... Well, you think you know so much, how would you solve the housing crisis? And I was like, fucking, this is how. And then <laughs> there's like a table of women were like, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, it was so sweet. But um, one of the questions was, you seem to think that uh, the only solutions out there are left-wing, and you seem to think that the only people that matter are left-wing, and what about <laughs> diversity and inclusion? Which was, <laughs> I loved that question, and I was like begging the person in the room to identify themselves so I could mock them, right? <laughs> But I, I said, um, I was like, uh, you know, uh, if there's a right-wing solution to immigration and refugee settlement, like, fucking let me hear it, because all I've heard is shit and that you guys are actually fucking evil. So, you know, that's fine. But I was like, look, like, I, I'm a left-wing person, but I'm not a partisan left-wing person. I could care fucking less about the partisan politics in this country, by and large. I mean, sometimes I have to care. But as a socialist, it's like... Yeah, I, I think we do have to talk about this more. Like, what, what does that look like? And, and what does it mean to see power within workplaces and power within communities and to be outside of the partisan structures, which is very powerless? I mean, that's a, that's a, we're self-marginalizing. It's not super useful. And I'm not a member of a socialist tendency because they've all kind of collapsed and they're fucking weird. No offense to anyone in this room of any of them, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that yeah. I do think that we need to rebuild socialist uh, organizing, organizations, absolutely. And I don't want to be the one to do it, frankly, um, but um, never say never. I mean, I would say I'd never run for the NDP, that I can say never. Building a socialist organization of some kind, like maybe, 
Um, but I think that that is necessary uh, because we have to build these places to have these kinds of discussions, to have these kinds of educations and readings and debates and whatever, and that's where you get the richness of ideas and sharing those ideas. Um, and so if you want to start something, I mean, go ahead. Uh, or if you have something, that would be fun to hear about. But, uh, but I agree with you. We need to be more visible. Yeah, and the, the only thing I would say to add to that about the what comes next is that we should always remember that we don't necessarily need to have all of the answers of what comes next, but we do have to be committed to the project of building it and to having the discussion about it. I think a lot of the ways that we get um, the, the way that detractors will make us feel like, oh, you don't have the right answers with the with the, the way that you identify on the left is that you don't have the answer to this and you don't have the answer to that and you don't have the answer to this. It's like, okay, capitalism also doesn't have the answer to all of those things. And um, e even if, you know, like I was connected to the political system that we have now, uh, we were talking about just, Adam, just the um, this week, it's like the, the political system renews itself on a pretty regular basis. And we take a look at everything and it's like this stuff didn't work or this stuff did work. That's what power does. And then it recreates it. It makes like no one expected capitalism to be what it is right now way back you know in I don't know 1912 or whatever when uh, in that version of capitalism it was remade and remade and remade and the great thing about us is that we can remake anything that we want like we don't have to have all of the answers but we do need to be dedicated to the project and the principles and so um, in terms of what comes next we have to be committed to building what comes next. And we don't have to be committed to being right or being like unblemished about the way that we are building that thing. We don't know. We don't know what the best thing is. We haven't built it. Otherwise, we'd be able to say it just needs to be exactly that. We have to be committed to building it. Mm.